Father, I thank you for your word. Even passages that even culturally rub us the wrong way. Passages that, I thank you for passages that speak directly to situations in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would help us to revere your word and come to it and that you're uh, with an open heart willing to say yes to you. And that as we do, that you would speak, even through me. We pray that you would be glorified in Christ's name. Amen. As we get into our passage, I would like us to just step back to remember the context. Pastor Michael, over the past couple weeks, has reminded us that context is key. Some people call it, say, context is king. If we rip this passage, well, hot mic. If we rip this passage out of its context, we will misunderstand what Peter is communicating. So if you would turn back to chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 9 uh, and 11 and 12. And this is, this is the baseline, this is the foundation for what Peter has written about being a citizen, being servants, and now as husband and wife. He writes to the saints, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. These verses need to be remembered as we think about our passage this morning. Peter is writing to those he's, he's calling exiles, those that are, that are citizens of God's kingdom, but living in the kingdom of the world. And as they live as exiles, as they live as sojourners, those that are passing through, he says, you will face obstacles, you will face objections, you will face hostilities, you will face suffering. You will face them as citizens, you will face them as servants, as employees, and, and as even as slaves in that time, and you will face them in your marriage. And so with that, he says, look, live as a citizen of God, even in light of your situation, even specifically to shine forth God's marvelous light in the darkness of the world around you. He said that, You are holy people, so live holy lives. They are recipients of God's great mercy through which he called them to be born again of a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. And it's bestowed on them, this is from chapter 1, an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading hope and glory. So that this change is then evident in the way that we live. It ought to be evident in the way that we live. So with that, now let's turn back to our passage as Esther beautifully read it for us. And Peter begins, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. 
Peter begins by speaking to the married women in the church, or churches, the region that would circulate this letter. The progression from servants to wives isn't saying that wives are like slaves. Some commentators have made that observation. Rather, he is linking household situations. He's thinking, what does it mean to be a citizen? A, a slave would have been under a household, and wives would have lived in the house. So he's making a progression to, of, of concentric rings of relationships. But before we go further, I want to address the elephant in the room. Passages such as this one, where wives are called to submit or be subject to their husbands, have been misunderstood and misapplied, both in and out of the church. And I want to speak to you sisters, particularly. The damage is not insignificant. It has ravaged homes, broken families, caused tremendous amounts of trauma. The passages, this passage and others like it, have been used by some to justify spousal abuse, which is abhorrent. It is evil. It is intolerable. And it is absolutely not what this passage instructs. That's why the context matters so much. And the reality is, again, sisters, but brothers, you need to hear this too, that abuse is a massive problem in society, and it has been for generations. This sad part is that it's, the statistics are about the same inside the church and outside the church. That should make our blood boil. That should make our stomachs churn. In fact, the misuse of passages like this one within the church have often led to worse situations. I want to say that. We can talk more about it offline. I've been reading a lot about abuse. Actually, there's a, there's a book called Dar, uh, by Darby Strickland called Is It Abuse? And I would highly recommend it to anyone who has experienced abuse or wants to help others that they know that are walking through a season of, that they're in the midst of abuse. This passage does not advocate any of those things. It doesn't instruct husbands to dominate their wives. It doesn't tolerate abuse in the home. It's not saying, wives, be a doormat. Instead, it actually is calling both wives and husbands to live with a kingdom mindset. One that is driven by a sincere care for the other and actively is seeking to cultivate in the other a love and passion for Jesus. In this passage, Peter is instructing the sisters who are married to live in light of where God has placed them. And he recognizes that their situation was likely complex. Because for many women in the church, their husbands may not have been believers. Some had, of the women likely had come to saving faith after they were married. While others, being Christians, were brought into a marriage through an arranged marriage. And they are now married to an unbeliever. And culturally, the wife was 
understood to take the religion of the husband. And so Peter recognizes that there's a conflict. There's going to be a struggle now. What is she going to do? And as believers, they find themselves in this situation and Peter recognizes that they could either feel the pressure from their unbelieving husband and abandon Christ and say, it's not worth, Jesus isn't worth it. I'm going to just go along. Or they could abandon their marriage and just go, well, I'm with Jesus. See you, dude. And Peter says both responses are wrong. So they find themselves in a dilemma. What's interesting, and I want to make this clear, is that Peter actually, by addressing them specifically, the, the, the wives, the sisters specifically, he's doing something that culture, his culture would not have done. He honors them. He gives them dignity. He sees them as equals. Many in that culture would have said, who cares what they think? Peter says, no, they are of infinite value. Sisters, I love you. Jesus loves you. You are co-heirs with Christ with me. We are citizens of God's eternal kingdom. I'm treating you with great dignity, and I'm speaking to you. And you have a choice to make, dear sisters. He recognizes the toughness of the situation because he, the foundations, the deep core beliefs of husband and wife are now different. They're standing on uneven ground, so to speak. Paul would, uh, the Apostle Paul calls this being unevenly yoked. So it's no wonder why Peter addresses women here because this marriage situation could result in suffering. It, it could be, result in suffering in the sense that there could be pressure from the husband to recant her faith. To say, walk away from this Jesus guy. There could be Difficulty in criticism and mocking. You're going to go with those Christians? It could come as the result of losing relationships. And no doubt these women would have felt stuck. Sisters, maybe you, some of you can sympathize. But instead of bailing, Peter calls wives to remember their heavenly citizenship and press in. He writes, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When you see, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. In other words, wives ought to use their freedom in Christ, similar to citizens and servants, as an opportunity to demonstrate who their, who their true king is. Peter's saying, don't use your newfound freedom in Christ as an opportunity to abandon your covenant, to do as you please, to live by the passions of your flesh. Rather, humble yourself and commit to your husband. Here's and being, be subject to him. That word subject, submitting, we've, we, Pastor Michael has, has covered in the past couple weeks. I don't want to rehash things, but I think specifically in, in, in terms of wives, I want to be specific about what Peter is not saying. 
One, Peter is not saying women are to submit themselves to all men categorically. Peter writes, be subject to your own husbands. It is critically important to see that wives are to submit to their own husbands, not just men. This also means that girlfriends don't submit to boyfriends. It means that fiancés don't submit to their male fiancés. They're not married. Men do not rule over women. Wives are, uh, Peter is not instructing that wives, you should not have your own opinions or share your thoughts or just follow blindly. Clearly from the verse, from from the passage, we see that the the wife clearly has a different opinion and a different belief system that, that she believes in Jesus and the husband doesn't. The wife has a very different opinion. Peter is not squashing this or any other opinion that she has. Peter is not instructing that wives are to be dominated or controlled by a husband. Abuse, emotional, psychological, spiritual, sexual, physical. Abuse always is, occurs in order for the oppressor to gain control over somebody. They use abuse in order to get control back. This is never okay, and it is always evil. A wife does not have to endure, allow, or excuse abuse in any form. That's not what Peter's saying here. He's also not saying that women are secondary or less than. High school girls, run for president. Like, it's not saying that you have to stay in the kitchen or that you were less of a person. Again, Peter is addressing them specifically, showing them dignity and honor as co-heirs with Christ. You are not secondary or less than your husband or any other man. He's not saying that wives should just blindly follow their husbands, particularly into sin. Once again, we see this in the passage. Peter is saying, live a holy life. You're not to follow your husband into sin even if he is calling you into it. And wives, lastly, again, you do not have to endure the difficulties, hardships in marriage in silence. I think one of the beautiful things that Peter is writing here is that he's inviting people to share their struggle. I would bet that many of you sisters have experienced hardships and struggles in your marriage. Not abuse, but just hardships and difficulties and and, and frustrations. But you you do so in silence. You don't want to experience the shame of letting someone else feel that or open that space up. I don't think we... Wives or husbands should badmouth or mock or embarrass their spouse. But I think in trusted company, we can share our struggles. You don't have to s- struggle in silence. And in fact, the Christian community is a, is, a, is, 
It ought to be a place where we can bear those burdens together. So if this isn't what Peter means, if it's not what he means, what does he mean? First, it means, one, wives are to humbly commit themselves to their husbands. Being subject to their husbands means to commit to uphold the marriage covenant. Peter's instructing wives to carry out wedding vows with sincerity, with love and care. Not trying to undermine or live contentiously with their husband. Not trying to undermine the relationship. They're not to use their freedom again to abandon the covenant promises, but rather in humility and with intentionality, they're to submit themselves to them. They're they're to, like Christ submitted himself to God the Father, wives humbly show up in in the relationship. Second, we see this also from verse one. Wives, the way that this, this happens, that, that, that wives are to follow, live this holy life, is they let their lives speak loudly. Peter says that be subject to your own wives so that even if some do not obey the word, he's talking about husbands, if they do not obey the gospel, if they do not believe in Christ, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. I've used this illustration before, but I love Ebenezer Scrooge. How did the town on Christmas morning know that Ebenezer had been transformed? By his actions, by his disposition, by his conduct. This is the principle that Peter is laying down for us. Look, Peter is not saying don't tell your husband about Jesus or don't tell people about Jesus. We can assume that the husband knows. But he's saying, look, you don't have to just say it all the time, but rather let your conduct demonstrate through your actions, through your hope, through your disposition, through your conduct. Peter says wives... By submitting, by by loving, by caring, by upholding your marriage vows, well, the husband may come to believe as well. To live in such a way that commends the gospel. To live in such a way that actually stirs in them curiosity, attractiveness to Christ. Show them the, the transformation that you have experienced by the grace of God. Be Ebenezer Scrooge on Christmas morning. We can only do this when we first and foremost submit to the Lord Jesus, ourselves. The conduct flows from a heart that is submitted to God. It's interesting, and I think it's a bad translation in the ESV. It says, Peter says that husbands may be won to Jesus through a wife's respectful and pure conduct. Uh, The word for respectful, I think it's better translated reverence or fear of. And meaning, and what we see then is Peter is not instructing the wife to just be uh, just doting and respectful to the husband. Rather, the reverence is actually towards God. 
That the wife is to be, the conduct of, of, of the wife, the way that you win is to say, I am completely committed to the Lord. And then I am wholehearted, pure, holy. The word is actually holy. And to be holy is to be integrated, is to be fully in. We, we, we often hear the, like oh, being holy is set apart. That is, God has set us apart. But it also means completely devoted. So to be holy means to be wholehearted. And he's saying, be reverent of God's great love. Be reverent before the Lord. Fear the Lord. And live, walk in that wholeheartedness. That's how your conduct would commend the gospel. To be fully made alive and walk fully in the pleasure of God. We have a... There was a woman that used to come to Jamaica every year when we were there. And uh, Sister Maureen, she was so sweet, had been a Christian for decades. Loved ministry. And every, you know, she would always come by with, she and her sister, and Maureen's husband was not a believer. She told the gospel, she would teach the gospel to him, but he didn't believe. And for years he would go, hey, you go on your mission trips. I'm glad you want to go. I'm not going to go. And years after years, decades after decades, Maureen was faithful to let her conduct commend the gospel. In the last couple years of his life, he actually got cancer. And by God's grace, through the ministry of Maureen, through the prayers of saints for decades for this man's salvation, by God's grace, he was one to faith. That may not happen for everyone who's married to an un, a non-believer. But it ought to be the goal. And it not just in our marriages, sisters, but also in your other relationships. Do your, does your conduct commend the gospel? Brothers, does your conduct commend the gospel? Whether you're here talking or whether you're at work, whether you're online, whether you're interacting with the cashier who has just taken way too much time. Does your conduct stir in others at least an interest and a passion for Jesus? A curiosity. That's what Peter says, wives, live in such a way that Jesus is unignorable. Kirsten and I have been watching this surfing show on Apple TV Plus, Make or Break. Anybody watch it? It's quite compelling. All right, but, but surfing is completely subjective. These women and men jump on these gigantic waves. They're doing the same moves, but no wave is the same. And no turn is the same. But these judges have to score them. And it is... It's completely subjective. Some guys come in banging into the judge's room. What are you talking about? I had a 7.5, not a 6.2. My way was bigger than his. And the idea is, what I'm saying is, make it so there's no lack of certainty. Live in such a way that you can't help but see Jesus. That it's undeniable. That it's unarguable. That it's without a doubt. We need the spirit for that? You'll need to continue on. Maybe. But 
but it is what God's called us to, and he says, I'm helping you along the way. Third, he says, wives ought to prioritize their heart. He says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Peter is not forbidding nice clothes or a nice hairdo or even wearing jewelry. Like at the time, the fashion of the day particularly for women of means, was to dress like they were going to the Met Gala. Some would even put gold strands in their hair. In one sense, some, some commentators actually think that Peter is actually helping because recognizing that there would have been a, a diversity within the church, those that have a lot and those that have a little. So he's inviting sisters to not highlight that distinction, but rather honor them, that those with lesser means, to be more modest, to not draw attention to themselves. But even more so, he's saying, it's not what the, out, the outside doesn't make you beautiful. Wearing clothes does not make you a beautiful person. TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat, they all have these filters. Whether it's like dog ears or whatever. But, and, I, and I go, I don't know how to do this, but I know some of y'all know how to put the angle so it's your best shot. We're trying to project something. But just the projection, and again, um, dating apps, I'm not on them. But so much of them is about what you look like. It, it's, not even, it's not even I like long walks on the beach anymore. It's do you look the right part? Swipe right or swipe left. But you can meet monsters that way. Get taking care to cultivate a beauty that's inside. Here's the thing. It doesn't stay within. That's the irony. By Peter saying... Don't be so focused on doing yourself up to look apart, but rather cultivate what's inside because it will shine through. It's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out. We love, we do what we love. What we desire shows out. past weekend in our prayer meeting as Pastor Eric, uh, I'll do it again, Eric, uh, former Pastor Eric, just for time, not for any other reason. Uh, his term was up, I should just say that. He's still honorable and worthy of the title. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. That's what we read from Isaiah. We read this passage, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Cultivating a gentle and quiet spirit before the Lord comes through reading his word, through meditating on it, through prayer, through fellowship with God's people. This is the way that a beautiful inner person is cultivated. And we remember that, been reading through 1 Samuel, when God calls David to be king, 
Man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. When we were in Jamaica, there was this sweet saint. She's gone, now gone to be with the Lord. Her name was Aunt Cora. She lived on the top of the hill in this little town. She was as sweet as could be. Kind. She didn't have much. She was generous. She loved Jesus. She was warm. She is more beautiful than any of the Kardashians because of her conduct. Because her love for the Lord shone through in such a way that her smile could melt your heart. If you're out of these ladies, wives or otherwise, if you don't commune with Jesus, you, you won't love, love like him. If you don't take time to rest in his gentle presence, you will not be gentle with others. If you do not quiet your soul before him, you will not have a quiet spirit with others. You need need to cultivate your heart. Peter shows the irony. He says the expensive stuff of the world ultimately proves cheap. It rots. What is truly valuable is a gentle and quiet spirit that trusts in the Lord, even of seasons of difficulty, and he says that it is precious or You could translate it this way. It's very costly in the sight of God. Lastly, Peter calls wives to humbly follow their husband's lead. Not blindly, not into sin, not without discernment, but follow nonetheless. Verses 5 and 6, Peter writes this. He gives us an illustration about what this, the heart of a, kingdom-minded wife looks like. He says, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Peter is referencing when Sarah followed Abraham in the Old Testament in Genesis and she submitted to his leadership and and, and, in in a commendable way. I want a couple notes. Wives, you don't have to go home today and call your husband Lord. You could. might be weird. This is simply like a term of respect. It was kind of like sir or my dear husband. One of the things that I think is so cute is hearing Justin, Pastor Justin and Annie talk to one another. If, you, if you've been around them when they address one another, does anyone know what they call each other? My love. My love. That's what's going on. It's a term of respect and endearment. It's my, my love. And the situation is that Peter is referring to Sarah responds to being told that she's going to bear a child in her old age. Yet even though she could not understand how this could happen, she trusted the Lord first and followed Abraham. I think Eugene Peterson paraphrases these verses very well in the message. He says this, Cultivate inner beauty 
the gentle, gracious kind that God delights in. The holy women of old were beautiful before God that way and were good, loyal wives to their husbands. Sarah, for instance, taking care of Abraham, would address him as, my dear husband. You'll be true daughters of Sarah if you do the same, unanxious and unintimidated. Peter's calling wives to love their husbands in an other-centered way, in a way that prefers and honors them. It doesn't try to undermine or manipulate. Rather, it's a love that is sincere and loyal. But friends, sisters, it may be, there may be times that following is hard. For some, it's following into the unknown, whether it's a move or a big financial decision. When Kirsten and I were deciding to leave Jamaica, after three years, we had a, several months of conversation. Kirsten would have stayed for another 10 years. I really felt the Lord was calling us to go. And we talked about it, and I, I wanted to hear, and, and, and we, we invited others into the conversation, and ultimately, she's like, all right, let's go. When we moved to Louisville, and, and not because I'm really smart, she's way smarter than me, but there's... But that was the right move at the right time that God was leading us. And, and Kirsten, to her credit, was like, all right, I'm going to trust the, the Lord is leading you, and I can trust in him. I'm going to trust you too. Whatever leads to a fearful decision, we can remember that God has promised to care for you. Later, Peter's going to say, cast your cares on the Lord because he cares for you. Friends, in other ways, in other times, there will be times that you cannot follow. Again, if your husband is leading you into sin or to deny Christ. And in this way, just like citizens and servants, wives are to hold fast to Christ and not to fear the outcome. In Peter's day, divorce and alienation could result if a woman rejected her husband's religion. Peter's saying, look, up." Uphold your end of the covenant with love, but even if things get difficult, do not fear because the Lord knows and will provide. And I just want to say it plainly again. This does not mean stay in abusive relationships. All of this, sisters, requires humility. If you come in like this, it's not going to work for you. It requires humility. So whether you, like some of the women in 1 Peter, are married to an unbeliever or your husband is a believer, the thrust of this passage is not to belittle or subjugate women. Rather, it's a call for Christian women to live in such a way that, that, that they are striving to cultivate a love and passion for Jesus in the heart of their husband. Now men, we only get one verse, but there's a lot in it. And I'm mindful of time, but let's look at verse 7. Because marriage is, um, rightly imposes obligations on us too. Peter writes, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Men, if you're a Christian husband, then you're, the way that you treat your wife ought to be of a different kind and caliber than that of the unbelieving world. Look, non-Christian husbands, loving, caring, many of them are wonderful. Yet our homes, our relationships to our wives ought to contain a unique quality, 
one that is rooted in who we are in Jesus. Just like wives, husbands, we are to live in a way that cultivates a love and passion for Jesus in the heart of our wives. Again, it ought to be shocking and heart-wrenching for us to hear of men abusing their wives. It should be unacceptable for us when it is in the church. So how can we prevent this? How can we not add to the statistics? How can we be helpers to those that are in difficult situations? One, how can we even change if we're leading poorly? One, Peter says, live with your wife in an understanding way. Upholding the covenant of marriage for a Christian man is not just like living with, it's not just meant to be live with them or provide for them. It's seeking to know them, to understand them, their desires, their fears, their interests, their opinions, their preferences. Husbands, do you know your wife? Not just their Chipotle order. Like, do you know them? Do you know what drives them? Do you know what their fears are? Do you know what's going on on a heart level? Because brothers, this is the truth. This is how God, and through Jesus, has loved you. He has loved you in an understanding way. He knows your frame and he took care. He showed mercy on you. He has moved towards you. He knew your needs and he met them. Brothers, this will require you to take initiative, to ask questions, to listen closely. I get it. Life's busy, and schedules are complicated. But it doesn't mean that our wives should be our roommates. And I'm speaking as one who is guilty. It's easy. I'm very extroverted, like very extroverted. But when I get home, I, I tend to be more quiet. And it's not because I don't love my family, or I don't, but it's just I Turn down the dial. One of the things that I've been aware of is how that impacts my family. They see me really social outside of church and not so social at home. And that leads to them thinking that I don't want to be there. That's wrong. I've had to, I, I desire to, to live in an understanding way that, that cares to change so as a way to honor them. Kirsten will often let me know that this is happening. She'll go, you're in your head. You're here, but you aren't present. I'm thankful for those. Don't take offense at them. Passivity and waiting for our wives to do the work of cultivating the relationship or even just think that closeness was a thing for when you were dating is failing in your call to be a husband. You are to strive to know and desire to understand your wife. I think curiosity, just in what's going on in somebody else's life, also speaks to the God that we know. God is interested in your world. If you're not curious about what's going on in the life of your loved ones, then I think you need to rethink your theology. We 
We ought to stir in others, in our spouse, a gentleness and a willing to care for them. Or, or, um, rather, when we live in an understanding way, it ought to stir in us a desire to want to know them more. Uh, some of you guys know, like, I like the Enneagram. It's like a personality test. I used to hate personality tests because I thought it would like, corner me and I didn't like being cornered. But when I found out what I was, I was like, oh, that's really eye-opening. And when I found out the number that Kirsten was, she's a one. That's a perfectionist. I'm a two. I'm a helper. Now, perfectionist has a bad connotation. It sounds nitpicky. But rightly understood, it means that she sees disorder in the world and she moves to step in to create order. That's beautiful. When I see that and understand that's how she sees the world, now it's like, oh, she's, she's bringing order to chaos. It's no longer being offensive. We're going, but that's, that takes time to live with somebody in an understanding way. It, it, it stirs in us sensitivity and gentleness. When we understand that we can then rightly lay down our lives for them as Christ loved the church, we can lead them not with hubris in claiming our right, but with gentleness. Secondly, a kingdom-minded husband honors his wife. Peter says that women are the weaker vessel. Some have taken this to mean wrongly, mentally, or physically inferior. A couple things. Women, on the whole, were, are typically not as physically strong. I, I know there's some cross, CrossFit women who would tear me up. Because that is the norm, men ought to honor instead of trying to dominate. In Peter's time as well, women were not treated equally. So Peter's drawing on the fact that he's saying there's no more distinction in Christ anymore. There's neither Jew nor Greek, male or female. He's saying you are co-heirs, you are equal. So treat them equally. Look out for them. Even when society tries to push them down, you step in and honor. Honor with your words, honor with your actions, honor with your affection when they are around and when they are not around. Husbands, see your wives as fellow disciples. Again, marriage is meant to be a partnership in the gospel. You aren't just two Christians living in a home, but partners, you're heirs together in the grace of life. Peter says, to fail to live this way, to live kind of like your own self-absorbed world and just kind of expect wife, you know, your partner to kind of manage this, this area of this life over here or do her thing. Peter actually, and, and, to, and to fail to recognize her as co-equal, co-heir, Peter actually says that you will not, the Lord doesn't hear your prayers. You'll hinder your prayers. In other words, we ought to see our, our wives as fellow travelers towards God's kingdom. Considering all this, the question is, are we leading in a way that desires to know, honor, and love our wives? One of the reasons the word submit creates so much stench is because men have failed to be worthy of it. 
It's not a right to be demanded. It's a responsibility to be earned. See, Paul's command to submit, excuse me, Peter's command, it's not, it's not a forced submission. He gives the sisters full right to choose it or not. It's a choice. It is purely voluntary, what Peter is calling them to. But if we understood this passage and rightly, again, according to the context, seeing what it's saying, submission wouldn't be the main buzzword and the massive point of contention. This passage actually shows us what humility and other-centeredness love looks like. It shows us a love that flows from the grace and love of God. It shows us that the gospel, the good news of Christ who saves sinners, who, who brings them out of darkness and into his marvelous light, how it changes the way in which we consider all of our relationships, especially the relationship between husband and wife. So where do we go? A couple quick things. Looking at this text, we can conclude Peter is calling both husbands and wives to live with a kingdom-minded focus. And in doing so, strive to cultivate in the other a love and passion for Jesus. We are to stoke the flames of the gospel in each other's lives. If you're married and your spouse is not a believer, pray for them. Continue to live in a way that points them to Jesus. If you are both believers, step in and encourage one another to press on in the Lord, to love each other well. Another, one of the ways we can do this is by asking the JFK question. You know, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. We can ask ourselves, wives, what can I do for my husband that will stir in him a deeper love and passion for Jesus? Husbands, ask yourself, what can I do for my wife that will stir in her a deeper love and passion for Jesus? So in other words, look for ways to build up, to encourage, to support. Ask yourself, how can I be a picture of God's grace in their life today? How can I live with kingdom values and kingdom hope today? Take time to think about how you show up in your relationships particularly your marriage, do you constantly grumble and complain? Do you mock and belittle? Do you speak passive-aggressively? When you get angry, do you turn the cold shoulder? Silent treatment. Do you show up ready to engage with your partner, or do you just go to the TV or computer or your phone? Perhaps this is the place, to, the place to begin is repentance. First before God and then to your spouse and say, I haven't shown up in a way that is understanding. I haven't shown up in a way that is trying to, to stir in you a love for Jesus. For those struggling in marriage, I want you to know that you don't need to suffer alone. I would encourage you to press in and commit yourself to being faithful Engage, loving, humble as much as it's up to you. I'd also encourage you to share your struggles with someone who could help, who could stand with you. And if you're in danger, 
you are under no obligation to remain in that state. As a church, we want to help. We, we, we haven't always been perfect, and we, we, we won't always be, but we want to help. For those that are not married, I realize that you, you've sat a long time to get to your part. This passage may be hard for a whole another set of reasons. Maybe you've longed to get married and you just feel that grief of not being yet married. Friend, you are not a secondary citizen or lacking in any way in this community just because you're not married. You are co-heirs, co-equals, full partners in the gospel. Use where God has placed you to bring him glory and to use your gifts. We need you and we're thankful for you. Whether you're married or not, can do the work to cultivate an inner person, which is very precious in God's sight. And whether this passage speaks directly to your situation, realize, too, that you were called to live in such a way that your life, your relationships, your actions are meant to shine forth God's kingdom that has dawned in his coming, to shine forth God's grace that you've received to the world around you. And let's live in that way that we would point people to the, the glorious grace of God who's called us, who came, who conquered, and is coming again. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for the difficulty of it. I pray that you would... Help us to consider it, hide it in our hearts, that we would, that our relationships, particularly our marriages, would honor you. That would be a, a means of sanctification and growth for all. We pray now that you would be pleased, continue to work in us, continue to grow us for your glory and our good. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.